We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your hosts, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go. All right, I'm very happy to bring back on the podcast Andy Martino of SNY. He's here to talk about his book, among many other things. You Last time you were on the show, I think it was after the Yankees were bounced from the playoffs. And, right. and so we talked about the, the decision that Boone, Boone and his team made to uh, in that game two of that series. But you mentioned that you were writing this book about the Astros, and I, I definitely wanted to check that out and get you on the show. So welcome. Well, thank you, and that's much appreciated, your interest in that. Yankees, we haven't talked in several months, and the Yankees are still hungrily awaiting their next uh, World Series appearance. So yeah. <laughs> nothing's changed too much. Uh, yeah. Although, we, as we speak, they've played uh, four games, right? Yep. And, um, you know, the bullpen and the pitching looks very, very good. They got a lot of guys that can spin the ball and uh, some guys, some bats that are coming to life. So who knows? Yeah, except uh, for, I think, people, of course spend the first weekend overreacting to a few games, which is always silly in baseball. But oh, look at the Yankees leaving another 10 guys on base. Well, so there is that. And you know what? There's an intangible there that I wonder about just a little bit, because I know from covering that organization that there's a natural human impatience toward getting to that next level. And there's no way to ever prove this link. Um, but you just wonder if that cloud of like, why hasn't this happened yet? starts to settle over the franchise rather than 
um, hey, everything's, you know, a couple of years ago, everything's on the up and up and we're so excited and everybody's young and the future is bright. Now it's kind of back to like 2007 levels of like, why the hell haven't we won anything in a while? So you hope that those things don't, the Yankees hope and you as a fan hope that, that those things don't manifest in like squeezing the bat a little tighter, you know, throughout the year and things like that. But I, I do think, think the players, is, do you think players really are, are feeling that though? Or is that more think, of an organizational and obviously fans, not that they, you know, fans want to always win a world series. That's the expectation. But, or do you think that's more organizational, organizational than player? This is going to be a, a kind of a, again, like a very unprovable answer, but I think fans probably feel it the most organizations like front offices feel it second in, in that ranking. Cause at least they can comfort themselves in telling themselves that they have a good process. Whereas yeah. fans are just going to be. Who cares what the them. process is? What's the right. result? They don't care about that. Rightfully so. So that, so fans I'm ranking of like impatience fans at the top front office after that. And then I'd say it does trickle down to the players in, in the sense that some more than others. Uh, I do think that guys like, I think Aaron judge in particular is a guy who I take him at face value when he says he's getting antsy for this kind of thing and how the, the losses in the postseason start to hurt and add up. I, I, I believe that from Aaron judge. I think in that, in that regard, he's, he's sincere. Um, and I think there can just be a general climate around a team that kind of gets into the bloodstream. And again, like very oversimplified, lots of different factors at play. But like, if you remember that late, um, aughts Yankees teams, like oh, the yeah. late Messina and Giambi years, where it's like, totally. come on. Yeah. And oh yeah. Oh five. Oh six. Oh seven. Those playoffs. Right. Those that wasn't it, it. The teams had such success in the regular season. Always won close to a hundred games, and then it was one thing or another in the in the division series, whether they were yep. losing to Detroit and Kenny Rogers was out pitching Randy Johnson, or they were or they were running into each other in the outfield in Anaheim. It was always something. Right. So then you get to that point where, like, by twenty, by two thousand nine, it was like a relief. Oh, right. thank God we won one is probably the feeling. And now it's like tensions built up again where I just feel like in 17, everyone was just excited. Like, mm-hmm. yay, this is going to be a whole other run. And we've got the new, what do they call them? The new, the baby, baby bombers. Baby it's bombers. The new form. The ba- and it's just like a sense of future and possibility. And the story hadn't been written yet. And now part of the story is written. And I didn't mean to use this as a transition. No, it was great. If you you didn't do it, I was going to do it. Yeah, because it's right there to be. And this is how they feel. I can tell you that inside the offices and and certainly the clubhouse at Yankee Stadium, it's like that was our window. And in reporting this book, uh, there was definitely some Yankee people who were like, we would have won in 17. They're really carrying that. Oh, that was our year. That kind of feeling. Now, whether they're telling themselves that Look, you can certainly critique that, but I'm saying that is a feeling. So I do feel that as it relates to like this Yankee season, I think one challenge that they have is that intangible sense of like impatience and this is taking too long. And you just wonder, does that affect you in the field? Not if your relievers are all throwing a hundred and Stanton and Judge are healthy, but I feel like it's in the, it's a mix in the, in the recipe of what, what defines the season and in, in this era for them. Yeah, I mean, I I think all of that is fair, and certainly the players who are on that 2017 team will feel cheated, no mm-hmm. pun intended, and they absolutely should. And we'll never 100 know how much what the Astros did actually affected the product 
mm-hmm. or the the result of the games. You know, you can tell yourself, oh, what, one pitch could change a series. Right. If if you know one changeup is coming, that can change an entire series. So I'm not here to tell you that what they did or didn't do caused them to win that that 2017 ALCS. But you're totally right. I remember Scott and I, my co-host, after that 2017 ALCS loss, even though we were devastated by the loss, it was unlike any other ending to the season I had felt in my Yankees lifetime because I was so excited for the future, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they lost. And 18, 19, and, and last year's playoff exits obviously did not feel that way because you go into those seasons expecting a World Series. You trade for Giancarlo Stanton, you better win a World Series. You sign Garrett Cole, you better win a World Series. And when those things don't happen, it's fair to look at the organization and say, well, what's taking so long, guys? Yeah. And I would imagine that would be the downside of rooting for the Yankees or even being the Yankees is that that baseline of expectation is so high that win the world, like you just articulated, win the World Series, that you can get into these periods where Again, anything short of that feels disappointing. Whereas if you were in for a different franchise, it's just a different culture around it. It might not be quite so frustrating. Like it's not as if a whole lot of other teams are counting like the within they you know, if you won about a decade ago, you're you're not there yet. If you root for like, you know, any like if you root for the White Sox, you're not like it has we haven't won since oh five. What's yeah. going on? You're like, yeah. hey, we won in oh five, we're good for right. a while, you know? So I think Absolutely. that's that's when it gets tough to be to be in that Yankee world is when that sense of uh, uh, creeping impatience kind of sets in for everybody. Fan, like I said, fans, front office players, everyone feels it. You know, and so I kind of I always put the Yankees and the Red Sox in the same grouping. Um, and the Red Sox have won three championships since the Yankees last won a championship, but they've also had a handful of last place finishes. Mm-hmm. And right now they're going through a rebuild. So you have to ask yourself, well, would you rather be the Yankees who haven't won a championship since 09, but have never been completely garbage like the Red Sox have? Right. Or would you rather be the Red Sox who have three World Series, but also have seasons that like by May 1st, you're like, well, what the hell am I watching? Well, what would you rather be? You're the fan. You tell me. What would you rather root for? I would rather miles? root for I would rather root for the, the contender always, because okay. then you give me a season at least. And I never think that a team like the Yankees or the Red Sox should be bottom feeders. They're, they're too... I agree. The, the, the organization has... This is going to sound corny. There's too much history. There's too much mm-hmm. money. There's too much everything for an organization like the Yankees or the Red Sox to be a last place team. It should never yeah. happen. Yeah, it's better business too. And a cynical level um, to, be, to be playing uh, meaningful games every September is better for revenues, TV ratings, in general interest, then and never win a World Series than it is to do oh, yeah. what the Red Sox are doing. Their fan base is disengaged before the first pitch is thrown this year. Yeah. Uh, so that you if you're the business entity, you want the customers engaged every year as deep into the year as you can. And the World Series is not really all that relevant to that conversation. That's almost more like, yeah, and if we grab one of those every once in a while, great. You know? Yep. Yeah. And all those mid market owners are just crossing their fingers that their team is playing relevant September baseball so they can right. rake in those those TV and gate revenues in September. Uh, and I totally understand that from a business perspective. Uh, so I read the book. I finished it yesterday. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so Great. nice job there. Thank but 
what what drove you to want to write about this, which I understand is the biggest scandal since PEDs in baseball. But why did you? What drove you to, to write this book? Well, combination. I think of it was it tapped into some of my personal deeper interest in the game, and also as a reporter, when you feel like you've got a foothold in something, like you got a beat on a story, you just you're you want to creatively just keep unspooling that and keep going. So I had written a story, reported a story in the 2019 playoffs about the Astros whistling. And and like, so I broke that story that the Astros were whistling during that um, game one. Yeah, it was game one. Uh, well, Tanaka, Tanaka, Tanaka on the mound. Yep. Yeah. And the Yankees complained. And so getting that, and then A.J. Hinch reacted really angrily to my story. Um, <laughs> so from there... I kind of like, you've got some sources, you've got a, you've got a feel for a story. A couple of weeks after the season, I then reported that the Yankees had seen the flashing lights and the scoreboard. Uh, and then, so when the athletic story comes out when they did this great job of getting Mike Fires to go on the record, uh, I sort of was already working the story credit to those guys for breaking the big one. But you know, like I felt like I already had, I had a foothold in it too. I was interested in continuing to report it out. And as I did, I just found so much that was interesting to me in terms of um, things I was able to learn about the game that I could never have learned from sitting in the press box or even really watching on TV with an untrained eye. When you have the access to talk to people who are involved in this sort of thing about what you see when you look at a pitcher, a catcher, a runner on second, um, sign sequences. I mean, how many do we see this stuff all the time, our whole lives from the catchers? I finally learned for the first time that if you put the first sign down after you put two down, it means that's the sign. all those kinds of things. Yep. We just don't learn those things in our um, typical vantage of, of enjoying the game. So um, it was just so fascinating to me to be able to, to learn more about how that game within the game works. And it was just I, that an was, education. Yeah, that was personally. my favorite part of the book, actually. You know, the stuff about the Astros, like that's what the book centered around and the reporting of it and how all that news came out. But I really enjoyed how you kind of set it up with all the major players and how they got to the point of banging trash cans in the dugouts. And you start with, you know, the, the, um, Carlos Delgado and Sean green all the way back in the nineties. And they're basically them being introduced to the idea of picking up a pitcher's tell and relaying it from second base to the batter all legal stuff that's been going on mm-hmm. for forever. And I don't think anyone thinks that is illegal. That's right. And then them passing that eventually on to Carlos Beltran, who became obsessed with this and Carlos Beltran as his career progressed and technology started becoming more prevalent and the MLB putting in the replay room, it kind of just like opens up Pandora's box for here are these shiny toys that can help you steal signs. Now, we don't That's want right. you to use it in a wrong way, but but we're not going to actually put a rule to it. And then, yeah, it just devolves into this, this scheme that the Astros had going. So, and, and when you got into all the different things about what the Mets did in the um, Bobby Valentine era, like mm-hmm. I, it, was a, it was funny. He, he spent like all, all night trying to decipher signs. Like That's I can right. picture him yeah. try, like on the back of an envelope, just trying to like come up he with had an algorithm. I mean, it's hard to summarize, but he literally <laughs> assigned, he shoot the third base coach. Then he had like a model of a human body. He had what he called an <laughs> algorithm. It, like where he assigned a number to each part of the human body. So if a yeah. coach went like 
nose, hat, nose. Let's say it was 4-3-2. So he's like, okay, the Phillies third base coach is 4-3-2, nose, hat, nose. And he'd stay up all night, like you said, trying to decode this stuff in the clubhouse. And the problem was by the time the Phillies came back to town, like in August, they changed their stuff. So he's like, screw this. But it was the first attempt to try something like that with team-owned cameras. 1997. 1997 is when that was. Yeah. So you can kind of, that, that was again, my favorite stuff in the book, because that that's, that's all the stuff that uh, I'm sure all teams have done throughout history to try mm-hmm. and gain an edge. And it wasn't until the technology was in place that made it so you could figure out the guys throwing a curveball and get it to the batter in a split second that mm-hmm. uh, it became a real issue for baseball. So, um, you know, the, the way you set up the book like that, I think w- was really well done. Well, thank you. I mean, it was interesting to me. You know, one thing that when you write, when you cover baseball, you write columns or daily stuff. One thing that has always bothered me about it is that the form kind of encourages you to make quick judgments on people. Like, this guy's good. This manager had a good game. This manager had a bad game. This player's good. He's bad. Judgmental. Form. Column writing. Book writing gives you the space to not be judgmental, but to flesh out full characters. To see these people as, as full humans who made bad choices, but why? So as you just alluded to, Andrew, that's why I, that's what I tried to portray, like a hundred year evolution of sign stealing and how you would get to this point where you're doing these wrong things. And that's another thing that really intrigued me about this. The game within the game stuff was fascinating. And then there's three people who I knew to varying degrees, Carlos Beltran, Alex Cora, and AJ Hinch. And I said, I, I think these are three basically decent men. And How did they end up on the wrong side of a clear moral line? How did this happen? And and for each of them, it had to do with choices that they made, weaknesses that they had, that the situation was just perfect for. You know, everyone's got a character flaw and theirs were perfectly matched to the situation. And then the culture of the Astros. And also, as you just said, the tools that were available in the instant replay era where um, you go from looking, as you said, Carlos Delgado and Sean Green looking at the second baseman or the pitcher, excuse me, the runner on second or the pitcher to try to figure out what what pitch is going to be thrown, to all of a sudden, Cora and Beltran, who learn from guys like that, have a video monitor. It's like, oh, so I can just see it on the TV thing now and just hit this garbage can? You can sort of see how they float into that uh, and see it as part of a trajectory rather than, you know, today I'm going to do something evil. I can. It, it, it's still, it, it still is beyond my comprehension that they're sitting there slamming a bat against a trash can, and they're like, "Oh, nothing's wrong with this." That's like, right. I don't, well, where they ended up is bad. So it is interesting, and, and we don't. Let, I hope you don't think in the book that I let them off the hook because it's no. clear that they that they cheated. But, um, like, you know, I just tried to think like. Well, I've done bad things in different contexts. You know, how, how do how did I get there? What are the series of choices that led me to a bad place? And that's what I tried to rewind to. So, uh, no, I don't think you let them off the hook. Although, was your point to, like, I don't think the point of the book was to have them be on the hook. You were, it was sort of just the evolution. It was, yeah. it was the evolution of how they got there and why, right. how this all happened. So, you know. I, I I think I know your opinion on what they did and you think it was wrong, but and that, that was, that was clear in the book, but I didn't think the point of the book was to, to bash anybody. Yeah. Like I said, try not to be judgmental. You try to, if you read a novel, you're looking at choices that people make just as full choices and you understand them, whether you, whether they were good choices or not. And, and I guess that that's, 
what this having the space of a full book I, I was hoping afforded. Well, I think the, the book also poses the the in my opinion the million dollar question, and it's something that we've all talked about: Is cheating in baseball wrong? And how do you, what do you consider cheating? And I, I wrote down this quote that you use from Dombrowski, who after the Red Sox uh, Apple Watch scandal, he was still the GM at that time. Right. He said, do I think sign stealing is wrong? And then he chuckles and he says, no, I don't. I guess it depends on how you do it. But no, I never thought it was wrong. I guess everybody in the game has been involved with it throughout the years. So this, this belief amongst baseball people, whether it's Hinch, Cora, Beltron, Dombrowski, whoever the hell you want to talk about, they think what they're doing isn't wrong because the other guy on the other side's doing it. It's the same thing mm-hmm. with the PEDs. Mark McGuire is injecting horse steroids in his ass, and he doesn't think it's wrong because he thinks the next the pitcher's doing it too. Mm-hmm. So I totally understand how we get to these points. Yeah, there's a lot of moral uh, gray areas that people get themselves in. Ultimately, they're justifying. The Astros are using that to justify worse behavior. Uh, one of the major things I had to figure out in this was like, were the Astros just the team that got caught and the 10 other teams do something just as bad? And I'm I'm quite confident that the Astros were the worst. At the, you know, the, the other teams were well, in a gray if there area. There was a team that was worse. They're, they're sitting back with their feet up laughing hysterically right now. Right, well, that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I, maybe I'll eat these words and somebody has a deathbed confession one day and like the White Sox were doing it too, but I really don't think so. Um, and so like one Astros player said to me at one point, it was like, we were convinced that everyone else was doing it. And then like the curtain got pulled down and we looked around and we we're like, Oh shit, not everyone's doing it. Uh, yeah. so they did use that to justify in their minds, but it just wasn't true. A uh, Yankees and the Dodgers are great examples of the gray area. They yeah. did yeah. things that are considered electronic sign stealing schemes. Um, but just aren't the same kind of clear moral choice that the Astros made for a variety of specific reasons. Yeah, to be clear, what you're talking about with the Yankees is that after the replay room was put in in 2014, uh, players would use the replay room to decipher signs, and then they would try and relay the sequences to the second baseman, the second base right. guy, the, the, the right. base runner on second yeah. base, so they could then relay it to the batter. So. The ending part of that is totally fine, but it's how they're getting the information. It's not supposed to be coming from the dugout or from the replay room. It's supposed to be coming from your own eyes that you pick up sequences. And you can obviously talk about this amongst each other. Oh, I saw this when I was on second. Yeah, I saw the same thing. That must be what it really is. But then the video backs it up or confirms it or gets you to the conclusion faster. So that's what they were trying to do. And Mark Teixeira said we weren't very good at it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Maybe that's Mark Teixeira trying to deflect. I don't know. Maybe a little. They did it. You know, it was A-Rod, Beltron, and Chris Young were three guys in those Yankee teams that were into, were super into it. And again, A-Rod is another example. Forget everything else about everything about A-Rod. In this context, he's a guy who's really smart about the game, loves to watch pitchers, picks up on tipping. Now he sees it, obviously, like a, a, a decently loose uh, moral compass, uh, generally on that human being. So he's well, he's certainly comfortable looking at the video and trying to get it to the batter. Cheater um, would never. They did all this, but a very important point to make about the Yankees on this is that um, there's before and after Rob Manfred's memo on September 2017. Um, that was after the uh, Apple Watch thing. Manfred then issued a memo saying, from this day forward, any team that does anything that's real-time electronic science stealing will be severely punished. Uh, the Astros did it after. There are no accusations of the Yankees doing doing it after. 
They experimented with the replay room and sign stealing, uh, got signs verbally to the dugout, to the runner, to the batter, and say 14, 15, 16, maybe 17. But there are no allegations against the Yankees for after 17. And believe me, I dug so deep into the Yankees for the simple reason that my information was basically the Yankees weren't as bad as the Astros. And if I published that in a book and it turns out to not be true, well, there goes the credibility of the entire book. I felt like so paranoid during this about the Yankees. Um, like, do not let the Yankees off the hook if they don't deserve it. You know, like that's like was rule number one in my mind. And I really believe that it's as I just described. They flirted with this line, but did not, did not cross it in the same way. And the Dodgers, too, for that matter. And. It would shock me if all 30 teams didn't flirt with that line. Yeah, it's a different degrees, absolutely. One thing I uncovered in the book, didn't make a huge deal out of, but like there was a investigation of the Milwaukee Brewers for having a monitor behind their dugout electronic sign ceiling in the 2018 playoffs. Uh, so it's definitely something that a lot of teams have played around with. That investigation turned up with a not guilty verdict, but but still, that was a, yeah, that was yeah. a thing for a minute there. And Rubbish. after the after the Manfred memo in 17, 18, 19 is when just everyone was accusing everybody, as, as you described. Right. And the Astros were accused of everything and anything. And then when there's smoke, there's fire. So were they over muddying baseballs? Were they using Band-Aid buzzers? Were they using a massage gun to slam the back of the dugout wall? Were they whistling? Were they flashing lights on the center field scoreboard? Maybe they were doing all of that. Maybe they were doing half of that. Who? who I mean, I think some of it is still, we're still unsure on some of this. There's some things that I didn't prove. I just showed, hey, this was the complaint and there was no, there was no proof. And some things won't ever be completely proven. Some things are more solid than others. Like I found out finally the deal behind the whistling thing. I had a little bit of a personal, you know, um, like thing about this because afterward MLB was very quick to be like, oh no, we reviewed the tape. It wasn't a thing. And the Yankees like, come on. They didn't make a huge deal out of it because they were in the middle of their series. I was annoyed because it was my story that they were sort of right. dismissing. But whatever. Um, fine. And, and there was nothing about the whistling on the Manfred's report on the Astros, ultimately. Finally, I was able to get an Astros source to admit in the recording of this book that it was um, illegal, but lower tech. What was You probably remember this from the book, but Gary Sanchez was tipping fastballs by raising up in his, in his stance too much. So... Mm-hmm. Alex Cintron, the Astros hitting coach, would see Sanchez tip the pitch and whistle at the batter. That happened. It's illegal. They MLB had just that year tightened its regulations and said you're not allowed to whistle from the dugout on tipping. So it wasn't electronic sign stealing, but it was a violation in the 2019 ALCS, a very clear sign stealing violation. So, and had they not been banging a trash can in 17 and all that stuff, I mean, would people they probably wouldn't care that much about that whistling if we found out exactly what you just said. Oh, Sanchez was tipping the pitch and they were whistling from the dugout and that's the only thing they did. We'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, that that's definitely wrong, but wouldn't my team have done that if they yeah, figured out yeah. a tell like that? Like, that's a very obvious tell. Like, I almost put that on on, on Sanchez. Just like when Severino yeah. got, um, got crushed in the 18 division yeah. series and because he was basically looking at, I think he was looking at second base or looking at third base every time he threw a slider or something yeah. like that. So so it's like, yeah, when you're that obvious, you're you're, you're going to get crushed. And that's, that's right. Just, and that's I, just how I it agree. Is. That it, it's, it's the, you're right. It's their broader reputation. The Yankees at that point, remember the Astros haven't been caught yet. So the Yankees have three years right. or so of being annoyed by the Astros. 
there's a whole scene that is in the book that hadn't been reported before that prior to that whistling game, Gene Afterman, the Yankees assistant GM, had had staged, like forced MLB to bring her along on a very showy inspection of Minute Maid Park, where she was like, um, while the Astros are on the field pregame, like BP and st- doing their st- shagging balls in the outfield and stuff, Gene Afterman's with like Chris Young and these MLB officials, and they're like looking at the scoreboard, and she's got a notebook with her and a pencil. It's a little gamesmanship, and she's like asking right. questions, being very demonstrative. And AJ Hinch and the Astros are sitting on the field, like, "Fuck you!" Like you know, <laughs> the, what do they have the, on the, us, or what do they? Yeah, that was that, the whole, yeah. that was the thing too. They were trying to make him think, "What do they have on us?" And they were resentful. So in the first inning, the whistling thing happens, and. That's already going on like a half hour earlier, an hour earlier, this thing had happened with Gene Afterman. So the, it was like, oh, you're doing something. And Hinch and Cintron are like, oh, you're, you're accusing it. Like it was already a whole thing that was ready to boil over because the Astros were the Astros, to your point. Yeah. And getting back to the three major players you mentioned, Hinch, Cora, mm-hmm. and Beltron. And they've all, they all got impacted by this to varying degrees. In my opinion, Beltron is sort of been crushed the hardest because he's without a managerial job. He was no longer represented by the Players Association while the other guys right. who were in the report were. Cora's back with the Red Sox. Hinch is managing again. So it, it and it, it, I would not have hired AJ Hinch again because, and I don't know if you meant this, so please correct me if I'm wrong. He does not come across as a good leader. He mm-hmm. basically, as you went through his history with Arizona, there was like a a veteran, I think you called it a veteran mutiny. Yeah. Uh, when, when he was in Arizona. And okay, fine, you can learn from that. But then he basically took inaction to stop what he said he believed was wrong in Houston. I, I'm sorry. If you're if you're call yourself the manager and you let the bench coach who's below you run run shit, you're you're not you you're not worthy of being my manager. So that's it, a fair it, takeaway. Look, like, I was careful in the book not to. Um, I have so many different platforms for my opinions, way too many than the world needs. We all do. I just wanted to write this as like, here's the story, you know, like here's what happened, then here's what happened, then here's what happened. And if you as a reader want to take that away, that's fair takeaway for sure. But, you know, um, I don't think I made that judgment in the copy, but maybe it was maybe it was between the lines. And I think that the thing about Hinch that was he's very smart, he's very personable, he's very ambitious, he's very... Uh, he has good leadership qualities in the way that he's able to go one-on-one with players in a way that's been described as pretty special, like sitting a guy down. Hey, here's what we need you to work on. Here's why I'm benching you. Da-da-da. Players are like re- really good at that. But he's conflict-averse because, I mean, this is somewhat oversimplifying, but uh, the veteran mutiny in Arizona, getting to Houston, like I don't want to have that happen again. So you walk on eggshells, maybe around Carlos Beltran, whose buddy Alex Cora is also, you know, part of this whole thing. And yes, it it, it results in what he clearly understands now as a failure of leadership. So it'll be interesting to see what he takes forward in his current job. Um, But uh, yeah, I think if you were interviewing him for a managerial job, I think you'd be asking the right questions. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And and as messed up as this might sound, I think Alex Cora... Maybe I would hire him again because he is a little bit more uh, of a leader, even if maybe he did the wrong things. I mean, I don't know if I would hire him 
but I understand more why Alex Cora got his job back than why AJ yeah. Hinch got another job so quickly. And, and I think Cora has done a really good job since the events described in the book of appearing authentic and uh, uh, regretful of what happened. I think he's done a nice job. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't seem to me like he's really trying to spin. He's just like, yeah, we did it. You know, what can I tell you? Yeah, we, we wanted to win. We'll do it again. Basically, and and yeah. I, I appreciate that about him, that he's that he's just he's real about it. It doesn't let him off the hook, but like he's just he's he seems to own it in a pretty as I said, authentic way. And I think he's demonstrated to be just a very, very natural young manager in baseball, too. So it'd be tempting to hire him if you were out there as the Red Sox did, because he's good. Right. Yeah, and because they got jobs right away again, it it kind of goes back to the well. How much does baseball baseball meaning the people, the owners, I guess, because they're ultimately the ones employing or not employing these people? How much do they really care about this sort of thing? And as bad as this scandal is, and as I, as as long as I think this will linger, it'll eventually be forgotten about, or it'll eventually be less important and. Will it happen again? Maybe. Well, I don't know. I think this particular one, uh, we'll see how it drifts over the year. I think we've probably drifted back into a steroid era that's going on um, in some extent because there was an intense focus on uh, enforcement that's over the years kind of faded for various reasons. So I think a lot of guys are likely back on the uh, on the needle, most likely, but or whatever else. You know, I don't think it ever really went away, but I, I would bet that to your point, like it was a big deal for a while and then right. it kind of got pushed away. Maybe this is like that. We'll see. There've been a lot of new procedures put in place that would make it virtually impossible this year to do what well, the Astros did. I don't but- mean necessarily exactly stealing signs with a video replay system, mm-hmm. but, but sign stealing, illegal sign stealing, like you went back all the way to the New York Highlanders and then the 1951 right. giants, like, the 2017 Astros. So will will some team in 2035 find some new way to steal signs and have it be a gray area at first and then turn into something illegal? Like, I, maybe I'm just cynical, but no, I don't... Probably. You know what they can enforce uh, is a player or an agent um, setting something up in, privately in the stands. Everything that they've done, uh, if you wanted to activate like a remote buzzer or something... You were in center field with a high-speed zoom something with a ticket, and you wanted to put your hand in the air when there was or buzz someone. Like very difficult to prevent that theoretically. Do you think they were using buzzers? uh, I I I don't actually. Um, I think that you can't entirely rule it out. Um, You can't. It's very hard to prove a negative, but all the evidence that I gathered. Uh, on that. And obviously that was another big one. Like if this is true, don't miss it. Right. Yep. There's, um, there's no evidence pointing to it really, truly. And, and a lot of evidence that points to the contrary, for example, players that I talked to that were interviewed by MLB investigators were like, um, they had the trash can thing down and they were like, did you do this? Yes. Did you do this? Yes. Et cetera, et cetera. And then when it came to the buzzer stuff, it was very clear in those interviews that they had nothing. They're like, so what do you know about <laughs> buzzers? And like, nothing. Like they just, they didn't have it in their investigation. And players were like, 
dude, I swear to God, I don't know what, what the hell you're talking about. There was some of that. Uh, Altuve, like, although Carlos Correa said a lot of things in his explanations the following spring that were had a lot of holes in them, the one about his story about Altuve and the tattoo actually checked out because he had the tattoo. All the Twitter accounts about this turned out to be um, almost certainly fakes, you know, the Beltran niece and all that stuff. These weren't real. Uh, and so there really wasn't anything pointing to the buzzer thing. Uh, and what it would finally, and then this is in the book too. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. it gets into their heads a little bit to the point where like AJ Hinch told the investigators, he's like, no way. No, no, no. I, I've never heard of anything like that. And they believed him. And I don't have any reason to disbelieve that. But later he was like with a friend after he'd read all the coverage and he was like, wait, was that happening? Like, he's like, you know, uh, so if I he would doesn't say know, though, if he was, doesn't know and he's the manager, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I would say that's the thing. If it was, it would have to have been a super, a uh, small circle of conspiracists pulling off something. I just described the way it could happen. Someone in the stands, like someone, but um, again, there's no evidence pointing to it. And I had to conclude that it's unlikely it happened. You know, the 1951 giants reveal finally confessed in a deathbed confession from a coach and after, you know, 2009 or something. So, you know, check back with Altuve in 60 years. But I, I, I don't think so. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? We've all gone through a lot over the past year plus with COVID. Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in your area, and it's available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living happier today. You can visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily to see for yourself. Visit betterhelp.com slash bronx21. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of experienced professionals. We have a great special offer for our listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash bronx21. One more time, betterhelp.com slash bronx21. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I think what I was going to uh, go to next was like you, met, you brought up the 51 Giants and by no means did that, their cheating of the, the shot heard around the world, the mm-hmm. um, Bobby Thompson knew the ball, knew what pitch was coming on that. That was not, to correct me, that was not known that he knew the pitch right away, right? That was many years later. Many, many years later. Well, it was known under the surface. Like Ralph Branca was told about it in 54, I think. A guy that used to play with Thompson was like, hey, guess what? They had your sign. And he was like, oh, wow. It's a sort of sad story because Branca, in his old age, relied on the memory of that home run for some extra income. He did the banquet circuit with Thompson. Mm. And it was like, oh, look, it's nice. They're friends. But he was quietly seething that his life was defined by this moment, which was the result of a stolen sign. And he knew it all along. Uh, Thompson went to his grave not admitting it. And then Herman Franks, who was the coach who had the telescope in, in the in the outfield, um, admitted it on his death. Uh, so, but Branca always knew. Um, you know, Branca was Bobby Valentine. It's such a funny thing how a small world this game is sometimes. But Branca was Bobby Valentine's father-in-law. And he told Bobby many, many times privately that he was bitter about the whole thing. I mean, this is a guy who was really interesting guy, nice person, was one of the first Dodgers to welcome Jackie Robinson in 47 and shot down the petition they had to keep him out of the clubhouse. Had a pretty good career as a pitcher. His whole life is just the guy that gave up the shot heard around the world. And Bobby Thompson was cheating. Right. How about that? Well, yeah, I mean, that I, I don't know how the man slept at night, to be, to be yeah. honest, when, when you put it in those terms. And I guess this isn't going to be apples to apples because, you know, that Bobby Thompson shot her around the world is celebrated in baseball as a, as mm-hmm. a historic moment. And it's not really brought up like, oh, he was cheating. Even today, it's not really brought up. Oh, he was cheating. The Astros thing, though, it's it was because it's been such a big deal. And basically immediately after the 17 season, uh, I, I don't think that in 50 years from now, you know, it'll be it'll just be totally forgotten. Like we will still know about the Astros cheated in 2017 and then 18, 19, likely doing some shady stuff too. Uh, but, but I guess my fear is, and like, like we touched on earlier is that it, it cheating is always going to be a part of baseball. And I guess it's just based on the tolerance of players and, and fans and the baseball uh, executives to how much cheating they're going to allow. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't. It's a great question. How much? What? What the story of this will be in a couple of decades, or how it's seen? I think he asked the right question. Probably about was Thompson shattered around the world thing known in its time? Maybe if it was found out like the next year, the memory would have kind of solidified differently. It was celebrated for fifty years, so at that point, I guess people were like, "We're not changing our branding on this." You know, <laughs> moment where it's a good one. Okay. It's like, forget it. Like, don't complicate it. But the Astros are known sort of so close to the actual event as a team that cheated that I think they'll, I think they'll be seen more analogous to the Black Sox. Um, obviously there's a million differences in the scenarios, but I think that in terms of just like top line, who are the cheating teams? 
um, in the history of the game. I think those are the two that will probably be seen at the top of the list. And it's I've been surprised by how enduring it's been. We've had a pandemic. We've had uh, all this stuff happen in the world. And last night, their game was disrupted by somebody throwing trash cans on the field. I mean, this is going to fall. This is poison in the well of this era for that team, right? Altuve and Correa and these guys, they'll never live this down in an Astros uniform. This is that franchise now. So um, that's a, I just, I think it's proving to be surprisingly, um, you know, thankfully, because I wrote the book a year ago and it's finally coming out. People still seem to care about it. Right. And uh, I, I think that'll, I, by book aside, obviously, I think that, um, I think they'll be seen in this light forever. That would be well, how is Beltron going to be remembered? Because this is a Hall of Fame caliber player who maybe would have been a terrific manager. We'll never know. Um, yeah. But and like uh, the last season of his career in which he wasn't even an important player on the field, he's wrapped up in, in this cheating scandal. And it's like, is this going to stick with him where otherwise it would have been a celebrated career? Maybe. Yeah, I think so. It's all unfortunate that he went back there for that reason, because he's probably would have been a case where the younger, more an- analytically inclined Hall of Fame voters would have made him a Hall of Famer, I, I-, I think even though he doesn't have the class, some of the classic counting statistics. Um, so, but it was a borderline-ish case, probably. It was debated. Uh, and this might be enough to say, you know, maybe he doesn't get those votes. I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. I, I think he'll definitely be tagged with this for sure. I mean, yes, it's a very recent thing that happened, but when you bring up Carlos Beltran, like what's the first thing in the casual fan's mind is this, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, so certainly the most recent. Yeah. And I think that one of the problems with it for him and his reputation is it actually is like the negative image of things that he was known for that were good leadership of young players. This whole thing comes out of his leadership. He loves mentoring young players. He has such a big heart. He really does. Um, God, I remember standing on the field with him during the ALCS in Houston 19 when he was interviewing for the Mets job. So he was, was a Yankees like, advisor at this point. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, in so many words, and basically these words, I'm like, Carlos, you've got all the money in the world, nice family, job where you can show up whenever you want to. Like, what in the world would you want to manage the Mets for? What are you doing? You know? And he smiled and he's like, I want to help these players. I want to do it. I just want to do it. He was going to, I mean, basically, at his level of wealth, he was doing it for free. Uh, and he, he really loves that. So, it's that mentorship that leads him down the path of, hey, guys, here's how you steal a sign. Hey, guys, let's move the TV over here. Hey, it's all in that actually big hearted spirit. And the other thing that he's known as being really good at is picking up on pitch tipping and signs. Decades, which it was legal, as we talked about. But my point is, those are his positives. Now there is negatives. So that, that's, right. that's tough on his reputation. Well, if he's not a 20 year veteran with borderline Hall of Fame statistics and a reputation that he had, he doesn't get the players to follow him in this cheating sk- that's scandal. Probably, that's likely. probably true. I mean, he has a presence that is, he's, Cora has this too. These guys are just, when they walk in a room, you're like, that is somebody. Like they just, Alex ah. Cora, do you think Alex Cora as a player could have done something like this? I mean, he was a backup middle infielder. You know what's funny is that I remember covering him it's a good question, and I have a memory to answer that. I remember covering him as a player on the 2010 Mets, and we went to Puerto Rico to cover a game. The Mets and the Marlins played in Puerto Rico, 
Cora is a very proud Puerto Rican, as Beltran is too. And, and Cora was like, had kids on the field pregame one of those nights in, in San Juan and was like, sort of talking to them. And, and just like, I remember looking at him and actually thinking like, for a utility player, this guy has huge presence. <laughs> I remember thinking that in 2010. So it's something about it. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think, but, Bel- but of course, I agree with you that Beltran's Hall of Fame caliber status only gives them that much more. And you put the two of them together and created part of what was a perfect storm for what happened, of course. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think those two have a natural leadership that's really, really positive, generally, except for this horrible year that defined, ended up defining both of them, right? Uh, when did you start covering baseball? What year? Um, uh, my first full-time job covering a beat was in 2009, but um, I did some stuff before that, a couple of years. 06, 07, I started going into clubhouses. Okay. So, I mean, this that's way after. Um, the. So I, I'm trying to get to the 98 home run race. And even sure. though... Certainly we, followed that very closely as a fan of the game. Yes, as as did I. Yeah. Uh, we knew, even me, I was 10 years old in 1990. I knew, because it was talked about, this was not on the up and up. But it was still celebrated. And I still feel like today it's looked back mostly with fond memories, even though there's this steroid cloud over it. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think, I think that our generation as a group probably took a pass for the most part on processing and thinking about the steroid era. Most of my peers who, who enjoyed that are probably mostly like, and this isn't a criticism, it's an observation. Just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to think about that. It was fun. Everyone was on steroids. <laughs> Maybe fun. everyone still is. I don't care. I think that's basically the way we decided as a generation to, to, to deal with that. So, yeah. And, and I guess my point here was that there's no, there's nothing fun about this Astros cheating scandal. There's no silver lining of like, Oh, Oh, we can, we can in 20 years, we can remember it because it was so great. I mean, maybe for the city of Houston, because it was right after hurricane Harvey, maybe them just the city of Houston, but the larger baseball world, I think we'll have nothing but negative feelings towards this. So I think that's yes. how that's that hopefully I think will be the lasting memory. That's a good point. Um, and, and that puts them more in the black Sox category. I think black Sox, sign stealing era and steroid era are the three biggest scandals in baseball history. Uh, and I think you make a great point about how there's pleasant memories of, of the, of the home run chase, obviously. Um, so that, follow that through and that would lead you to think that the Astros will end up more like the Black Sox because you're right Houston probably and there's Houston fans that still defend them and like they find me sometimes which is weird because I'm not really like out there ripping the team but they're very sensitive down there at least the ones who are on Twitter and it's like I mean poor John Boy's been harassed I think to no end by Astros fans but like those people those Houston fans probably have those nice memories but I think you're absolutely right that it's just that I've learned I've learned just to try and ignore most of the people on Twitter because well, you know what it's going to be the worst of the worst that there This has been a successful experiment. Although some people haven't have felt like offended and have told me I follow this is a tangent but I'll be quick with it but I follow zero people on Twitter now. <laughs> okay. Literally zero people. Um because I that way I don't have a feed to look at. Ah. And there's, I can't look at my phone as much because there's nothing to look at. 
So, so you went like, through and unfollowed everyone? I unfollowed. I followed like probably a couple thousand people and I went through one night and unfollowed all of them. <laughs> okay. I would have kept like a hundred, but then I was like, now I'm hurting feelings. It's got to be right. zero. So, so I literally follow nobody. So there's so many times people are like, dude, that thing that happened on Twitter, I'm, I'm like, I got to go like, look it up. Yeah. Like, I have no, I'm, I'm behind. I know. And it's wonderful. I've like, I've so much more time to think. Um, so like a lot of this stuff about Astro, I, I was part of that like earlier in the, before I did this, but now I don't see any of it. It's kind of nice. Mets Twitter too is horrible. Oh my God. So I don't even see any of that anymore. I took a mental break this winter from Twitter because I basically only use it for baseball talk. And yeah. basically after the World Series was over through the start of spring training, I barely posted anything. I barely opened the app just because it's like, like I, it's for the same reason you probably unfollowed people just because it's like you can't use up brain power sometimes. Some of these people are great follows, but it's just like, I don't need, how about I just don't live in, this, in on Twitter? How about I just don't know about it? What am I really losing? It's been kind of nice. I'm hoping that Twitter ages out soon like Facebook did at one point, where it's just like not really relevant in the culture. I'm hoping it goes that way because I think it's become really toxic and, and not that much fun. You better start working and, on your TikTok game. I see, I'm done with all of it. That's why I wrote a book. Everything I do, I want it to be on paper. You're going in the That's other direction. Feel, no, I'm going the other direction, yeah. I admit nice. that I'm swimming against a significant tide. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I'm trying to do it. All right. So tell people when they can get the book, where they can get the book, all that stuff. June 8th, um, anywhere books are sold. That's a, that, this is an early interview of this. So it's the first time I've ever been able to say anywhere books are sold. It makes me nice. feel fancy to be able to say that. But yeah, yeah I, so it's out June 8th. You can pre-order it now anywhere. Uh, and please do. I'm excited about it. I, I'm excited um, just for people to read it, like I think it came out pretty good, um, better than some other things I've done in the past because I was so passionate about doing it. So the passion that I put into writing it, I'm that passionate about sharing it. So I'm glad you read it, Andrew. I appreciate that you took the time to. Of course. And and I think for, for Yankees fans, because that's, that's I read it as a Yankees fan. And, and to be honest, I was a little hesitant going in. I was like, do I really want to relive like mm -hmm. the misery of the 17 mm -hmm. loss and but but it really wasn't about that and it i got wrapped up more in the how these like you said those three key players got to the point of stealing signs in the way that they did and i found that to be really interesting also jeff lunow not a good guy uh, uh, well again i'm not doing opinions on this for the reasons i said but if <laughs> that's say your the conclusion then i then i did you you're feel free to have it. yeah nice well andy thanks for the time again go check out his book and i'm sure we'll have you on again later this season thank you andy anytime always enjoy hey guys thanks for listening to the bronx pinstripe show make sure you find us on itunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone if you do like the show We'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.